0: Phoebe King Ensminger Byrne. That name probably doesn't sound familiar to you. But on August 18, 1920, Miss Feb, as she was known, might have become the most famous mother, at least in suffrage history. You see, Feb Byrne was the mother of Tennessee State Representative Harry Byrne, the 24-year-old man who changed his vote to support ratification of the suffrage amendment after he had received a telegram from his mother imploring him to, quote, be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. Harry Byrne had originally wanted to vote for ratification, but received pressure from party officials and constituents to vote against. Then he wanted it tabled. Really, he didn't want the decision to fall on him. And who can blame him? Placing the entire question of women's suffrage in the hands of a single person, let alone the youngest representative in Tennessee history, seems like a precarious business all the way around. And it was but this is what it looks like when citizenship rights are denied. All parties knew that Tennessee was going to be a decisive vote for the amendment because it would be the 36th and final state necessary for ratification. In the Tennessee state legislature, the vote was close, and the young and impressionable Byrne wanted to do a good job representing his party and his constituents. After a lot of debate, several members changing or abstaining their votes, the state legislature stood locked, 48 to 48. Byrne voted to table the amendment twice, but the House Speaker called for a vote. In the end, it was Byrne's most important constituent, his mother, who helped him make his decision. He switched his vote and voted in favor. The next day, Byrne defended his changing of vote, stating, quote, I know that a mother's advice is always safest for her boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. This story is both true, in that it happened, and false, in that it wasn't so simple. That such an amendment resting on the foundation of generations of women's organizing, striving, writing, petitioning, picketing, bleeding, and dying, that it could even be boiled down to a single vote, is ludicrous. Focusing on one vote, cast by one person, erases all of the work, all of the complicated politicking, all of the personalities, all of the clashing of ideas that had taken place before August 18, 1920. That single vote did not take place in a vacuum, and Harry Byrne, while we like to think that he was just listening to his mother, was actually listening to the voice of a longtime suffragist, who just happened to be his mother. On this episode of Hindsight, we will explore the years leading up to this momentous vote and the decades after. We will examine what it took to get the suffrage amendment through Congress and out into the states for ratification. But we will also discover what suffragists did after the amendment passed, Because while they all understood that the vote was a tool to effect change, not all of them had the same vision for what that change should or could be. So join me, Dr. Robin Henry, for Episode 4, The Vote and Beyond. In 1910, the women's suffrage movement felt like it was at a standstill. While there was plenty of activity at the local level, between 1896 and 1910, all six state campaigns for women's suffrage failed. Still, both local and national leaders were beginning to sense change. And by 1910, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, or NAWSA, and the women's suffrage movement were set on a very different and vibrant path, with new leaders, new members, and new directions. Some of these new leaders had familiar names. In 1907, Harriet Stanton Blatch, the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, formed the Equal League of Self-Supporting Women. This organization tacked away from Nassau's focus on upper-class women and instead encouraged working women, both professional and industrial, to join the cause. In 1908, Maud Wood Park helped form the National College Equal Suffrage League. While it was officially associated with Nassau, this new organization, like Blatch's, aimed to diversify the membership and face of women's suffrage. Former Nassau president Carrie Chapman Catt formed the Women's Suffrage Party, which would follow the umbrella-style model of political machines that, in the early 20th century, ran most American cities. To this end, she and Francis Squires Potter proposed to form political settlements. Modeled after the settlement house movement, a movement that embedded reformers into struggling neighborhoods, political settlements would serve as a nexus of education, information, collaboration, and camaraderie on suffrage and political organizing at the local level. Suffrage was beginning to spread, and its investment in different people was eventually going to pay off. With these new energies, old and new suffragists saw encouraging signs by 1910. But not all women, not even the majority of women, supported suffrage. Anti-suffragists supported the status quo, and for the mostly middle-class white women opposition, many of the members did not see what gaining the vote would do to improve their lives. It's important to realize that these women were not apolitical. In fact, they could be very informed and very active. However, they believed in separate and distinct roles for men and women, and while political influence was the domain of women, voting was strictly for men. What they were most concerned about was the loss of privilege that might come with the vote, in particular the right to stay home. They saw that as the right of women, and if they acquired the right to vote, it might signal the end of their freedom to stay home. However, the reality was that most American women could not stay home, regardless of what they wanted to do. While anti-suffragists might have been unaware of the economic needs and realities of working-class women, suffragists were equally unaware of how the vote might affect working-class women, making them an untapped wealth of support. In 1915, Nassau began to circulate petitions and flyers in a variety of foreign languages. While they had been doing this for women in the Midwest, the class differences between German, Polish, or Swedish-speaking industrial workers in New York City and those living in the Midwest meant that the former got little attention. But it was the experiences of working-class women and, in particular, their workplace safety and wage issues that left them more vulnerable than most middle-class women, and therefore in possible greater need of political and legal protections. In 1909 and 1910, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union staged two massive strikes in New York City, the Uprising of 20,000 and the Great Revolt of 60,000. Both strikes, along with smaller ones, requested basic safety measures in the garment factories. The strikes, which affected working-class women directly, crossed class lines for support. Wealthy women, such as future Roosevelt Labor Secretary Frances Perkins, Anne Morgan, and Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, supported the struggles and brought both financial backing, but also new attention. Not everyone appreciated the mink brigade's presence though, and activists like Emma Goldman felt that they took away from the real issues, the needs of working women. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in 1911 that killed 146 mostly young immigrant women radicalized the movement and made change all but mandatory. The New York City Council and the New York State Legislature both created safety regulations for adequate fire escapes, sprinklers, and escape routes in factories. Other cities and states with large industrial centers followed suit, Pennsylvania and Illinois in particular. This demand for change also saw the decline of the Mink Brigade. However, what took its place was not a new class of women, but instead a new organization—suffrage. As working-class women saw the direct effect that legislation could have on their circumstances, they began to gravitate toward NASA. During the last decade of the suffrage movement, working-class women would play a vibrant and vital role by revitalizing it with numbers, new and broader perspectives, and by arguing that in order for suffrage to be successful, it needed to provide a cross-class solidarity. The loss of several friends in the Triangle Fire turned labor activist Rose Snyderman into a suffrage activist. Born into a Jewish Orthodox family in Poland, she and her family immigrated to New York City in 1890 and settled into the Lower East Side. Early hardship required Snyderman to find work at age 13. The low-wage, long-hour job she found made her realize that she, and by extension her family, were vulnerable. Schneiderman joined the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union and eventually found her way to Harriet Stanton Blatch's Equality League of Self-Supporting Women. This new suffrage association wanted to include women from outside the upper class in suffrage activities and conversations. But for Schneiderman, it was the access to conversations on economic independence that resonated. Nassau eventually absorbed the League, and Schneiderman continued to speak at suffrage activities and was instrumental in bringing suffrage to a successful vote in New York in 1917, and saw working-class women as critical to suffrage prevailing in New York and eventually at the federal level. These new women meant that the new decade also saw an increase in Nassau membership, and the organization found a permanent home in New York City. The organization also solved the worrying problem of splintering factions and found ways to affiliate with most of the smaller, more specific suffrage organizations across the country. The exception to this was the Southern Woman Suffrage Conference that formed specifically to exclude black women from both the group and from suffrage rights. For Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, the president of NASA, this level of open racism was too much. While NASA and many of its members were fine accommodating racist attitudes and capitulating to racism, the explicit stated goal of excluding women from suffrage based on race and class was too far. Unfortunately, Shaw's refusal to affiliate the national organization with overt racism would prove the exception in the long-standing conflict over who deserved suffrage rights. As worrying as explicit racism may have been to Nassau, the younger generation's internationalism also proved challenging to the older guard. Blatch, Park, and future National Women's Party founders, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, all spent time abroad, in particular, in England. By the early 20th century, the English suffragettes, especially their leader Emmeline Pankhurst, had made a name for more militant, public, and in some cases, violent demonstrations to achieve their goals of women's suffrage. In 1903, Pankhurst founded the Women's Social and Political Union, a women-only suffrage organization that focused on deeds, not words. This focus on action led to political rallies and physical confrontations, including smashing windows and assaulting police. When arrested, they staged hunger strikes. For most men and women, this image of a woman seemed out of line with how natural women would and could act. But for American suffragists, educated, touring Europe, and looking for a new direction, these tactics seemed to be just the ticket. While not every American woman who worked abroad supported the most militant aspects of Pinkhurst's political union, there was a precipitous shift from words, that is petitions, statements, speeches, to actions, parades, open-air plays, picketing, that took hold of women suffragists after 1910. Matched with the growing interest and in increasing comfortability of Americans with women's suffrage, this action-oriented political activism took center stage beginning in 1910. Part of his new vanguard, though maybe not in age, was Helen Hamilton Gardner, Dr. Kimberly Hamlin, Associate Professor of History and Global and Intercultural Studies at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, talks about who Helen Hamilton Gardner was and how she affected the suffrage movement.
1: Helen Hamilton Gardner is the most interesting suffragist that no one's ever heard of, I think. (laughs) Um, She is a fallen woman who, rather than slink away in shame, reinvents herself first by moving to New York City and changing her name and becoming a nationally uh, sought after speaker and writer on a variety of reform issues. And then she reinvents once more when she marries a Civil War hero and lifelong army officer in 1902 and moves with him to Washington DC in 1910. And they settle into a house right next door to the speaker of the House of Representatives And she befriends him, and she draws on her husband's address book, which is chock full of Civil War heroes, Union and Confederate. the very same men who wield all the power along with their sons and nephews. So drawing on this and her personal charms, which are manifold, she becomes the suffragist lead negotiator in Washington, the woman credited with getting the 19th Amendment through Congress and with converting federal, um, the support of Woodrow Wilson for the federal amendment. And then she dies. Uh, she's the highest ranking woman in federal government and a national symbol.
0: In many ways, Gardner represents the full trajectory of women, and more specifically, women's ambition and possibility in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Her participation in a variety of reform movements allowed her to come into contact with suffragists, but to also continue the tradition of seeing suffrage not as an isolated movement but is connected to economic, social, cultural, legal, and political challenges that women faced. After arriving in DC, Gardner went to work, connecting herself into the suffrage network and working tirelessly on the activity of the day, the 1913 suffrage parade. This parade was meant to correspond with Wilson's inauguration taking place the day before and to publicly highlight the movement while reminding Wilson of the need to address women's suffrage. As Hamlin points out, Gardner quickly made herself indispensable to this effort, enlisting the wives and daughters of the political elite, and serving as a conduit between politicians and Nassau's Congressional Committee. It is through this committee that she met and worked with Alice Paul, a rising star of the new generation. While both women saw the importance of changing the movement and pushing toward a federal amendment, their approaches and personality frequently clashed, highlighting the significant differences that remained within the Suffrage Association. At first, all went well, but very quickly, it became clear that the interpersonal conflicts and differences in vision threatened the ability of the suffrage movement to achieve their goal. Again, Kimberly Hamlin on Helen Hamilton Gardner. She
1: fits in through this congressional committee. But now at the time of the parade, Alice Paul is the chair of the congressional committee. And first, you know, from December 1912 through probably April uh, 1913, just after the parade, Gardner and Alice Paul work very well together. You know, Gardner helps um, kind of overcome some of the Nassau officers' skepticism of Alice Paul. She roots for Alice Paul. She helps make the parade possible. But by a few weeks after the parade, you can tell things have cooled. And so from that spring of 1913, through the rest of their lives, Helen Hamilton Gardner and Alice Paul are enemies, bitter rivals. And what they are fighting over is who is going to be the voice of suffrage in Washington DC. Gardner despises Alice Paul's tactics because Alice Paul increasingly turns to protest, turns to what she's called what she calls heckling and also Alice Paul and what becomes her National Woman's Party consistently campaign against Democrats because in the 1912 election, Democrats took not only the White House with Woodrow Wilson, but also they control both chambers of Congress, um, which is for the first time you know in, in decades that this has happened. But to Gardner and the women of Nassau, it makes no sense to campaign against all Democrats when many Democrats, especially the ones representing Western states where women can vote are their friends and allies and also the women of NASA have been doing this a lot longer, and they know about the seas of change in Washington, right? That who's in charge one day is not going to be in charge the next day. Why alienate people that you might need to be your friends two years from now? So they come to really detest Alice Paul's protest tactics, part because of the tone strikes them as off. It's it's not polite. (laughs) Um, It's not appealing. And also because, you know, on the level of strategy, they're opposed.
0: So what exactly had happened? The 1913 Women's Parade marks not only a turning point in the movement's message, but also in leadership. While Gardner proved an instrumental force in securing permits and maneuvering through DC politics, it was the debut in many respects of Alice Paul to the national suffrage movement. Alice Paul, much like Susan B. Anthony, was a Quaker with a laser focus on her goals that left very little room for much else around her. Growing up, she had occasionally attended NAWSA meetings with her mother. As a young woman, she attended college and law school, working in the settlement house movement, and like many of her generation, traveled to England and worked with the suffragettes. Upon returning to the United States, she became involved in NAWSA and in particular, the Congressional Committee that favored a federal amendment. The 1913 suffrage procession was her first large activity with the organization. She wanted to put pressure on Wilson, who would be president, but also his party, the Democrats, who would be in charge of Congress. Paul wanted the parade to be larger than life and filled with symbolism of women's achievements and citizenship. She called in suffragists from across the country to come to D.C. to march in a parade. 8,000 heeded the call. On the day of the event, they proceeded up Pennsylvania Avenue, led by lawyer and suffragist Inez Milholland, who was dressed in white, riding a large white horse. Bands played. Banners waved. Women, college graduates, separated by profession, marched. Chariots and floats dedicated to memorable moments in women's lives drove by the more than half a million spectators who lined the streets. The goal was to end up on the Capitol steps as a pageant play unfolded. But two problems developed during the parade. First, Alice Paul and Nasa yielded to the request of Southern members to keep the march segregated asking all African-American marchers to march in the back. For suffragists who did not come from states or cities with such clearly delineated racial lines for public spaces, this was enraging. Yet another capitulation to racism by an organization that only barely addressed their needs as Black women. The second problem was security. While Gardner has secured the necessary permits for the procession, the city allotted insufficient police protection. As the crowds grew angrier, pressing closer and closer to the women, they created a near-riot situation. Police did little to stop the crowds from assaulting the women or blocking their lawful path. Eventually, members of neighboring states' National Guard units and even the Boy Scouts stepped in, caring for the injured and keeping the crowds at bay. In all this chaos, three positive developments occurred. In the middle of the mayhem, African-American marchers, including Ida B. Wells-Barnett, who had chosen not to march in the segregated Corps, reintegrated the march, moving forward and into the fracas. Additionally, all of the commotion, and in particular inactivity of police, initiated a public dialogue and reintroduced awareness and sympathy for Nassau and women's suffrage. Finally, the pageant used women artists, cartoonists, and writers to describe and display their messages and interpretations of women's life and the suffrage movement. Cartooning, in particular, was considered to be too aggressive for women. But women coming out of art schools, such as Blanche Ames, Lou Rogers, and Nina Evans Allender, began working for national women's journals and suffrage magazines like The Suffragist. These women not only drew the nuances of women's experiences, but also drew the pointed message to presidents and Congress to address political needs of women, including suffrage. While many of these images depicted women at home, they didn't necessarily imply women should remain home. By placing women in the home, cartoonists allowed readers to feel safe as the suffragist in question delivered a less than safe message or question to the readership. While most suffragist cartoonists worked on other subjects, like most suffragists, these other subjects were connected to women's suffrage and the growing women's movement that recognized that the vote was never going to be the end of the conversation on women's equality. For the next three years, Nassau attempted to both capitalize on the new move toward public action and maintain old ties to political candidates that much preferred lobbyists of all genders to stay in the background. However, internally, tensions began to rise between Helen Hamilton Gardner and Alice Paul over leadership and the direction of the Congressional Committee. Paul was beginning to claim national attention, but as Kimberly Hamlin explains, Gardner's personality and connections may have also fueled some of the tensions.
1: And her personality is so charming that people are just naturally drawn to her. A lot of, you know, a lot of her friends and acquaintances who wrote about her over the years would say, you know, she's always the center of the room. Not, to, not She doesn't talk about herself, but she's just so charming and she involves everyone in the conversation and you know she keeps up her acquaintances with basically everyone she's ever met and she was really skillful at cultivating these personal relationships with members of congress and dc officials so that when they saw her they didn't just think oh god you know here comes that woman to you know berate me about the 19th amendment again they think oh there's helen i saw her last thursday at You know, the tea my wife hosted and we spent her birthday together. So they had memories of her. You know what I mean? Besides just the time that she comes to ask them for a favor, they had a a personal relationship with
0: her. In the end, both women proved necessary to advancing the federal amendment and their cause of suffrage. However, for Paul, it proved to be the last straw, and she left Nassau to form the National Women's Party in 1913. This new organization focused solely on the federal amendment, but more importantly, it would also use increasingly militant and public actions, actions that Gardner and members of the DC elite, including President Wilson, did not appreciate. Between 1913 and 1916, Paul and the NWP continued to increase pressure on politicians, Democrats and Republicans, who did not support the suffrage amendment. For Paul, the choice to campaign against any politician who did not actively support suffrage, regardless of party, seemed foolhardy to suffragists like Gardner, who understood that politicians and parties change. But Paul believed that 1916 was going to be the women's vote election, with several states with suffrage on the ballot, and pressure campaigns focused on legislators who appeared to be lukewarm in their support. In a devastating blow, Paul's strategy failed, seeming to push women's suffrage even further out of relevancy for the moment.
1: The first time that Gardner reaches out to the Wilson White House is in um, the early summer of 1916. She's just come back from a long vacation in California, and she hears that her nemesis, Alice Paul, has taken it to a new level, that Alice Paul is now, now, by the spring of 1916, following Wilson pretty much wherever he goes. She's interrupting his speeches. And Gardner comes back to DC and she says, oh my gosh. So what she does is she writes President Wilson's chief of staff, title was executive secretary, but he functions basically like a chief of staff. His name is Joseph Tmalti. And she writes him this three page letter and she's never met him before, hasn't you know interacted with Wilson. So she writes to introduce herself and she lists all of her congressional friends. And she includes a piece of Nassau letterhead that shows her name as an officer she includes her calling card with a picture, but most importantly, she includes a typewritten memo to Tumulty that explains the differences between her group, NASA, and Alice Paul's group, the National Women's Party. And she says, Tumulti, I want you and the president to know that Paul does not speak for the real suffragists of America, the real suffragists of America are us, and we are lovely to work with, we are non-partisan, we want to work together with you, and you can trust us, basically, is what she's saying. And then she does something, you know, very clever, Uh, at the bottom of this letter, she writes in hand a postscript that says, is there a day when Mrs. Wilson receives callers as the wife of an army officer, I would love to, you know, pay my respects, basically. And so the very next piece of paper in that folder, in the Woodrow Wilson collection, is a memo that says "Sure, 10:30 tomorrow. So by the very next day, Gardner's already inside the White House befriending Mrs. Wilson. Now Edith Wilson did not support the federal amendment, so no suffragists had really thought to go through that channel before.
0: After Wilson's reelection in 1916, Paul dug in and moved beyond what Gardner called heckling and into daily public protests. Probably the most famous of these actions was the organized picketing outside the White House that began in January of 1917 after a productive meeting with President Wilson. As part of the new public direction, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns organized more than 2,000 protesters who stood silently outside the White House gates or across the street in Lafayette Park until June of 1919, nearly two and a half years. Much like the 1913 parade, the picketers, known as the silent sentinels, used pageantry to draw attention to their movement. They let their banners do the talking. Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Mr. President, what will you do for woman suffrage? These direct addresses were meant to grab the attention of Wilson, passers-by, and anyone doing business at the White House. They brought the issue of citizenship and liberty, concepts that Paul and many women believed they lacked, into the face of politicians and the American public. Even in the best of times, this tactic was controversial and radical. Not even all suffragists agreed with this approach. Gardner certainly didn't, and it deepened the divide between herself and Paul. When the United States entered into World War I, all of the animosity and derision turned to accusations of treason and unpatriotic protest. As in previous conflicts, many women believed that their place was to support American troops abroad and the mobilization efforts at home. Millions of American women across the country rose to this challenge by planting victory gardens, stocking hospital supplies, rationing goods, and in some cases, working in limited capacity in the U.S. armed forces and in industrial jobs vacated by men. Many suffragists saw this as another opportunity to prove themselves as loyal citizens worthy of the vote and joined in. However, the question of whether or not to continue the picketing challenged many suffragists who, while loyal to the Union, wanted to continue to make it more perfect. For Paul, there was no question. History showed them that when the women's rights movement paused during the Civil War, they were excluded from the citizenship extensions of the 15th Amendment. In fact, many of the antebellum gains of property rights had been rescinded after the war. Conflict over the direction of the movement had resulted in a severe split, a divide that had only just begun to be fixed. The momentum that the women's suffrage movement had finally regained in 1917 could not and would not be relinquished for the war effort. Paul and a smaller group of sentinels continued their silent protest, but under closer and more critical scrutiny. The banners changed, too. Instead of making demands of the president, they began to quote the president's speeches on saving democracy and reluctantly sending the United States into war. The time has come to conquer or submit. For us, there can be but one choice. We have made it. Wilson's target was Kaiser Wilhelm and the Central Powers. Paul's target was Wilson. Protesters, mostly men, threw rotten fruit and insults at the women. Newspapers across the country criticized them and called them silly. For DC officials, instructing Kaiser Wilson to take the beam out of his eye in a time of war went too far. On June 22, 1917, police arrested Lucy Burns and Catherine Morey. The women carried a banner that read, we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments. The police claimed it obstructed traffic. Three days later, 12 more women were arrested. In the sentencing, they were given the option of paying a $10 fine or spending three days in jail. Harkening back to Susan B. Anthony, who refused to pay her fine after an 1872 arrest because she had not committed a crime, the women chose jail. The arrests continued and increased throughout the summer and into the fall of 1917. Soon, the number of women arrested exceeded the capacity of the D.C. jails and they were sent to the Occoquan Workhouse in Virginia. There, they experienced unsanitary, unsafe, and all-around inhumane and unconstitutional conditions and treatment. When Alice Paul was arrested on October 20th, she was sentenced to seven months and sent to solitary confinement for two weeks with nothing but bread and water. She began a hunger strike, which led to her and others having tubes inserted into their nose and down their throats, and being force-fed a mixture of raw eggs and milk. Their stomachs, weakened by malnutrition and the hunger strike, could not handle the high-protein diet, and they vomited. Finally, on the night of November 14th, the superintendent ordered the guards to brutalize the suffragists in order to get them to break. They chained Lucy Burns' hands above her head, attached her to the cell bars, beat her, and left her. Dorothy Day, who later co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement, was slammed against a metal bench. Guards dragged, beat, choked, and kicked the women, leaving many of them to die. Thankfully, none of them did. When newspapers reported on the numbers of constitutional rights violated and the violence perpetrated against these women, Americans were outraged. Eventually, their convictions were vacated. All of these pressures, inside and outside the White House, led Wilson to announce his support of a federal suffrage amendment in his 1918 State of the Union. However, it would be two years and eight months of hard work to get the amendment passed through both houses of Congress and out for ratification, a process that was not guaranteed to work. Immediately following Wilson's address, the House of Representatives passed the amendment, but the Senate rejected it. The National Women's Party continued to protest outside the White House, burning Wilson's words and his image in effigy. Much to the chagrin of Gardner, who continued to press Wilson and members of Congress from the inside, Paul continued her campaign against anti-suffrage politicians during the 1918 election cycle. But this time it worked. The new Congress was pro-suffrage, and on May 21, 1919, the amendment again passed the House. Two weeks later, it passed the Senate. For the next year and two and a half months, suffragists turned their attentions to the state ratification process, and on August 18, 1920, Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the amendment. Eight days later, the 19th Amendment was certified, stating, the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Celebrations took place at suffrage headquarters across the country. But let's be clear. Despite the celebratory banners and cheers, this right, which was only just recognized for white women in 1920, was never given. It was fought for, struggled for, bled for, and died for. The women who started the fight in the 1840s had long since died. The women who saw the fight to its end had not even been born when it had begun. The 70 plus year campaign did not end with gifts. It ended in rights recognized. What next? When women woke up on August 27th, the day after certification, what exactly had they gained? In a general sense, the suffrage amendment transformed American women into fuller citizens, but beyond that, suffrage activists did not see 1920 as an end to their activism, but instead a moment to shift their attentions to other areas in which women were deprived of equal rights and access to full citizenship. For women of color, this often meant continuing the fight for the franchise. One of the compromises suffrage leaders made had been over race. Most southern states did not grant suffrage rights, but instead saw them vest with the ratification of the federal amendment. In order to gain some southern support, activists had to acknowledge that while this would be a federal right, it would be applied at the local level. For the vast majority of African American women who still lived in the South, what this meant is that Jim Crow laws that disfranchise black men would remain in effect and also disfranchise Black women. As Kimberly Hamlin points out, race played an essential role in how the state and federal campaigns and support developed.
1: For many years within the suffrage movement and among suffrage people who talked about suffrage, the big question was, should we put federal amendments or should we go state by state by state by state? So even Nassau, for example, for much of the 19th century into the early 20th century pursued both paths simultaneously. Nassau worked for, uh, you know, targeted state-by-state campaigns and sort of half-heartedly for the federal amendment. But after the 1913 parade, and especially after Carrie Chapman Catt becomes president of Nassau for the second time in 1915, Nassau goes wholeheartedly towards the federal amendment. And the debate about, you know, federal versus state-by-state and why some um, congressional leaders and the president favor the state-by-state approach, and also even why some suffragists favor the state-by-state approach, is race. The state-by-state approach does not involve enfranchising Black women in the South. In the state-by-state approach, you can just leave Mississippi, South Carolina, off the table. Those are states where the Black population is larger, obviously they're going to have a harder time just sort of can leave those states alone and no one talks about them. But if you do a federal amendment, then the question that comes to the fore and very much did come to the fore and truly was the biggest obstacle to congressional passage is race. What is going to happen if the federal amendment becomes ratified? What is that going to mean for southern states? What is that going to mean, not just for Black women, what is that going to mean for the enforcement of the 15th Amendment? If you delve into the congressional record throughout 1918, 1919, when the 19th Amendment is being debated, you would be very confused. You would think, wait, what? I thought we were talking about the 19th Amendment. Why is this whole debate about the 15th Amendment? Why are all these senators, especially, talking not about the 19th, but the 15th? And that really was eye-opening for me and showed me the extent to which race, more so than sex, is the primary obstacle to congressional passage of the 19th Amendment. And again, the reason is congressmen from both parties in all regions do not want to enfranchise black women in the South, but they also fear that a second amendment that grants the federal government uh, the power to enforce voting rights will somehow compel the federal government to enforce the 15th Amendment. So now the fear is that the 19th Amendment will enfranchise Black women and cause a broader discussion about the 15th and perhaps lead to its
0: enforcement. Like African-American women, many other marginalized women were excluded from voting. The United States recognized Native Americans as full citizens with voting rights in 1924. The Magnuson Act of 1943 repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act that, for 60 years, had barred Chinese and Chinese Americans from citizenship rights, including the vote. Mexican-Americans faced similar Jim Crow voting barriers as African-Americans. It would not be until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed, 45 years after the passage of the 19th Amendment, that all women in the United States would be included in the franchise. However, barriers such as incarceration and criminal status, voter ID laws, being a resident of the District of Columbia, continue to disfranchise people today. These laws disproportionately affect women, and particularly women of color and working class women, who are more likely to get caught in the cracks of voter ID laws with name changes, either before or after marriage, and abrupt address changes when leaving circumstances of domestic abuse. So the historical narrative that declares this, quote, first wave of women's activism over would have been news to suffragists. Activists like Ida B. Wells Barnett and Mary Church Terrell continued fighting to expand suffrage rights for African-American women in the South. But suffragists also expanded their focus outside of suffrage to demand fair and equal treatment in all areas of American life. To articulate this protest, activists used the same philosophies, methodologies, and fundamental skills that they had developed during the suffrage campaigns. For decades, women had not only been advocating for the vote, but had been challenging the attitudes and institutions that treated women as inferior and relegated them to second-class citizenship. No suffragist believed that this entire system would be toppled over with suffrage rights. It was always a first, though incredibly important, step. Initially, these demands about inclusion assumed inclusion for middle-class, white women. However, over the 20th and 21st centuries, women's activists challenged and continue to challenge this group of women and their demands as representative of the whole of women's experiences in the United States. This spirit of activism manifested into new organizations and transformed new generations of women into activists. Even before the 19th Amendment had been ratified, organizations formed to help educate women and lobby for women's issues. In 1911, Emma Smith DeVoe formed the National Council of Women Voters. While DeVoe's organization focused mainly on Western women, in 1919, she was approached by Carrie Chapman Catt, the president of NAWSA, to bring her National Council into partnership with the largest women's suffrage organization. Other organizations, like the Boston Equal Suffrage Association for Good Government, founded by Maud Wood Park. Pauline Agassiz Shaw, and Mary Hutchison Page followed and together formed the National League of Women Voters in February 1920. Under the leadership of its first president, Maud Wood Park, the League of Women Voters aimed to help newly enfranchised women exercise their responsibilities as voters while remaining officially nonpartisan. While developing as a national organization, Park and subsequent League presidents emphasized the importance of local politics alongside national candidates and issues like many suffragists, Park's success as an organizer and a leader was not confined to the League of Women Voters. In addition to founding the Boston Equal Suffrage Association for Good Government, she helped Inez Haynes Gilmore form the College Equal Suffrage League in 1900 and the National College Equal Suffrage League in 1908. Frustrated to be only one of two suffragists at Radcliffe College, the women's college associated with Harvard University, Park was determined to educate and attract a younger generation of women to what she saw as the issue of the day, women's suffrage. After the suffrage amendment, Park organized the Women's Joint Congressional Committee. Formed in 1924, it was a coalition of women's rights organizations with the purpose of coordinating lobbying efforts about women's issues on the national level. Park worried that after the 19th Amendment, suffragists would grow complacent and abandon women's organizations. For Park, the Women's Joint Congressional Committee was the perfect solution to channel suffrage energies into continuing to lobby for legislation supporting women's interests, including protecting infancy and maternity with the Shepherd-Towner Act in 1921 and independent citizenship for married women with the Cable Act in 1922. Additionally, Park's extensive collection of books, papers, and memorabilia on the suffrage movement and female reformers formed the foundation of the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe College in 1943, that serves as one of the premier women's archives in the United States. Certainly, Park was not the only suffragist who found work in government important and satisfying. Helen Hamilton Gardner also found work in the federal government believing that while the vote was important, being an involved voice in government work would push the federal government to address women's issues. Again, we turn to Kimberly Hamlin, who addresses how Gardner used her position in government to lobby for extending women's rights, in particular, for married women to work.
1: She uses her post to lobby for the rights of married women to work. So for a previous history, married women had not been allowed to work, and especially not in government posts. It was considered greedy. So if you have your own man, leave the job for another man. So there are all these restrictions that forced women, once they got married, to quit their jobs, not just in government, but in all sectors. So Gardner thinks this is wrong. So she uses her post to lobby for the rights of married women to work. And she again, she uses her humor and her charm, and she writes these speeches and statements saying like, okay, so if it's unfair for a wife to have a job, the husband works, like what are we going to do about all the fathers and sons, all the uncles and nephews that happen to be employed in the same, you know, line of work. And she says, what if this wife is a terrible cook? And what if she can hire a cook? She says, why would you cause indigestion for her family when you could just let the woman work and hire a cook? So she, that was her main, um, professional goal in the Civil Service Commission is to establish the rights of married women to work. But then on the side, she becomes NASA's one woman congressional committee. Carrie Chapman Kat says, you know, let Helen take the typewriter home so she can continue on in DC. And Carrie Chapman Cat is headquartered in New York. And so she has Helen Hamilton Gardner do all of the DC meetings for NASA in this time. And what Gardner really wants to do, and what her passion is, is to secure the legacy, the history of the woman's suffrage movement. So she had orchestrated the congressional signing ceremonies of the 19th Amendment. And I think they may well be the first in the nation where the press was invited to sign a, you know, a, to a congressional signing ceremony before there had been occasional treating treaty signing ceremonies, but not for laws.
0: This media event would serve as the foundation for other congressional signing events throughout the 20th and 21st century. But it also demonstrates how media attention had become part of the women's suffrage and, now, women's rights movement. The pageantry of parades and picket lines, the significance of the signing, not only showcased the issues at hand, but also began the process of normalizing women in public spaces, in the streets, in front of the White House, and in the halls of Congress. Women were there, and they meant to stay. After suffrage, other organizations focused less on political lobbying and more on social and cultural changes that would significantly affect women's lives. The birth control movement began in 1914 with the desire to increase the availability of contraception in the United States and to provide reproductive information and choice to women and men across the country. Seen as a more radical organization, it did attract suffragists like Emma Goldman, Mary Dennett, and Margaret Sanger who saw connections between women voting and laws controlling women's bodies in the name of, quote, natural roles and obscenity. Initially focused on overturning Comstock laws, which prohibited distribution of obscene material, including medical information on reproductive health, the birth control movement included conversations on free love and the overturning of antiquated sexual mores that restricted women's sexual expression and experiences. What women could do once they had the vote was to connect these issues that were of great importance to possibly a more radical section of women's activists and show how the inability to have basic control over their bodies left all women, not just radical women, vulnerable to the whims of men, families, and social and cultural norms. With the vote, they could support candidates who supported them. As Kimberly Hamlin points out, Helen Hamilton Gardner also found the issue of age of consent essential to women's equality.
1: So her affair that she had as a young woman in her early 20s as really being kind of a a motivating, a precipitating element in her lifetime of feminist reform. But I want to say a little bit more about what that means, the women's rights and women's suffrage movement as a whole. And that's looking through Gardner's lens and trying to see things through Gardner's eyes began to show me just how central Uh, a factor the sexual double standard was in motivating not just her, but thousands and thousands of women's activists in the 19th and 20th centuries. So Gardner was more bold than many of her colleagues in terms of, you know, the words she would use and how openly she would talk about sex, and especially the sexual double standard, and even more specifically, the prevalence of sexually transmitted disease. So Gardner writes a lot about the prevalence of syphilis. So think for a minute, if you were a woman in 1880, you can't really divorce your husband. You can't really say no to him. Or if you do say no to him, he probably doesn't care and has no sense that he should abide by your wishes. And yet syphilis and gonorrhea are so prevalent and you can be transmitted to your children. So Gardner writes a lot about transmission of syphilis to children and the unsightly things that can happen like syphilis teeth that mark children for their whole lives. So, once I see this through Gardner's writing, I start to understand that the sexual double standard is really what's motivating not just suffragists, but also temperance advocates. And I feel like temperance advocates sort of get a bad rap. You know, suffragists and temperance advocates are, you know, these, you know, nagging old white ladies who'd want to take away your party. But I really think that temperance advocates are the Me Too movement of the 19th century. They don't want to get raped, they don't want to be sexually assaulted. And they don't want to get syphilis or pass on syphilis to their children. So seeing this through Gardner's lens really drives this message home to me. And just to give one concrete example, Gardner learned politics, how a bill becomes a law, how you legislate, how you negotiate, how you lobby. She learned these lessons not in the 19th amendment, she learned them in the 1890s when she joined the temperance advocates, who were not her natural allies because they're mostly Christian, and Gardner doesn't ascribe to Christianity or temperance even, but she joins forces with them in the 1890s to raise the age of sexual consent for girls. So in 1890, the age of sexual consent for girls was 12 or younger in 38 states. In Delaware, it was seven. That means that grown men would have sex with girls as young as 10, and avoid prosecution by saying, oh, she consented. So this is horrifying and uh, to you know Gardner and women across America, and also because they're so afraid of the spread of sexually transmitted disease. What is gonna happen to these girls after they are quote unquote ruined? What is gonna happen to these fallen women? So Gardner begins writing about this. She writes two novels that dramatize this situation from the perspective of the fallen women. And for this, she becomes known as the Harriet Beecher Stowe of fallen women.
0: Of course, what Gardner writes about in the white community, that is, fallen women and sexual respectability, was one of the main points of African-American women's organizations and reason that so many Black women advocated for their right to vote. They wanted the badge of citizenship, yes, but even more importantly, they wanted a way to protect their families, and in particular their children, from racism and physical abuse and assault from white men and women. If they had no legal and political voice, they could not even begin to change the necessary laws to accomplish this. While white women had advocated for protective laws, including, as Hamlin points out, supporting temperance, they rarely extended these protections to racially and economically marginalized women. However, after the vote, all women's rights advocates began moving to support legislation to support women's lives and livelihoods. They just didn't all have the same platforms and audiences. While women's issues and political participation remained a central focus of organizations like the Women's Joint Congressional Committee and the League of Women Voters, other organizations and issues also attracted suffragists. Founded the same year as the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the American Civil Liberties Union interested women's activists like Crystal Eastman, Rose Schneiderman, and Jane Addams. Again, they saw the vote as important but also connected to other issues that women's citizens could also address. Like the League of Women Voters, the ACLU is nonpartisan and concerned with the defense and protection of individual rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution and American law. At first glance, the ACLU doesn't seem to be a natural place for suffragists. In fact, it was not until the Women's Rights Project founded in 1971 by Ruth Bader Ginsburg that the ACLU even actively addressed women's rights. But Crystal Eastman really reflected the diverse nature of women's activism. Like many before her, she was a suffragist and so much more. And this is an important time to remember that, because sometimes in the emphasis on suffrage, and in particular the 19th Amendment, we forget that for these women, suffrage was part of a larger rights-based argument of universal equality. Yes, that universalist approach could still come with glaring blinders when it came to circumstances of race, class, or sexual difference, but it's important to recognize that suffrage was never the only goal these activists had. However, for suffragists Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman, they once again saw a big picture solution for all of these inequities. Beginning in 1923, just three years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Paul and Eastman channeled their relentless energies into their next project, the Equal Rights Amendment. Like other activists, they understood that the vote was a critical tool, not an end, to women's voice and equality in American society, economy, and government. While movements addressing reproductive rights, gendered wage disparity, and rights of mothers and children were important, what the ERA did was to envision an umbrella statement declaring, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. This very simple statement did something extremely radical in that it did not recognize a single right or type of rights, but to extend all rights equally to men and women. For women who had opposed suffrage, they saw this as another step to eroding women's — and really we have to read this as white middle-class women's — privileges of protection. For the next 50 years, Paul, Eastman, and fellow ERA supporters attempted to get their amendment passed out of committee and through both houses of Congress — a feat that was only accomplished in March of 1972. Even today, this idea of men and women truly having equal rights and being recognized as equals in social, political, economic, cultural, and legal matters remains just out of reach and for some, a bit too radical. While the larger story of the ERA will be addressed in a future episode, the strength, breadth, and continued veracity of activism during the 1920s belies this historical narrative of the crash of a first wave of women's activism after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Regardless of how women approached the right to vote, no one saw it as the end product, the single means to equality. There was always going to be another movement. The 1930s were no different. Women remained active in government, social organizations, and as advocates of political rights. The Roosevelt administration saw Frances Perkins, a longtime settlement house and suffrage worker, elevated to Secretary of Labor. Perkins, the first woman to serve in this position, worked on aspects of several key pieces of New Deal public policy, including Civilian Conservation Corps, Federal Works Agency, and Social Security. Additionally, she helped craft laws against child labor and worked during World War II to move women into formerly male industrial and skilled labor jobs. Working class women, barred from most unions, became active in unions dominated by women, such as the United Cannery, Agricultural, Packing, and Allied Workers of America. As historian Vicki Ruiz shows, this union formed in 1937 incorporated Mexican, African American, Asian, and Anglo food processing workers under a single union. At its heart, this was a union that welcomed and allowed women to become leaders and organizers, not just stay in the background or be part of an auxiliary union. These professional and industrial women expanded where women worked, but also where women advocated. Normalizing women in all areas of American life remained a key focus and essential element of achieving equality after the vote. Suffrage was essential to select leadership that supported women's rights, but women knew that physical presence also normalized their circumstances and opened doors that had previously been shut due to custom. African-American women also used their long-standing tradition of activism to fight for economic justice, but always needed to address the double bind of gender and race. Dr. Kiana Irvin, Associate Professor of History at the University of Missouri, explored this activism in St. Louis at the Funston Nut Company factory. Gender
2: and race are deeply influential in shaping the workforce, the landscape of work Uh, during the 1930s in St. Louis. Those two factors shape what kinds of jobs folks have access to. Even within a kind of certain sector of employment, it shapes even what kinds of tasks that they do, their wages, how precarious is their situation, the degree of precarity is very much shaped by gender and race. So with respect to um, food processing workers at the Funston Nut Company, right, it was a nut shelling company in which workers essentially separate uh, nut meats from their shells, they sort them, they weigh them, you can see this shaping of gender and race quite profoundly.
0: For African-American working class women, while these jobs moved them out of domestic service, the work and pay were not ideal. Irvin elaborates on the ways in which race affected the day-to-day work that women experienced at the Funston Nut Company. Basically,
2: in in the Funston Nut Company, which had about five uh, industrial plants scattered across the St. Louis metropolitan region, basically African-American women workers uh, formed the majority of that workforce. There was a smaller group of of immigrant workers, Polish women, um, who were also employed there. Um, And essentially, they were divided by race. So Black women separated nut meats from their shells. Polish women um, weighed and sorted the nuts, right? Um, Polish women earned a bit more, not much more, but a bit more than African American women did. They were segregated in terms of when they uh, went on break, when they started their day, when they ended their day. And so they're they're obviously um, a very they're, they're they're precarious labors to begin with. I mean, no one really wanted to work in these factories because they weren't really they they were they were kind of the worst of the worst in terms of conditions. Um, there were lack of standards. The the wage levels were quite low. But clearly, even within that realm of of the workforce, you saw the, the power of of race and gender to define. The, the, the value and the meaning of labor. It's a good deal of political activity going on in the early 1930s because of the depression. You see a kind of wave of just working class militancy across the country um, as, as, as folks are kind of reeling from you know economic catastrophe, joblessness, unemployment rates are through the roof. And for black workers, this is, this is absolutely the case in, in, in even a kind of more stronger sense. For these women, at least in St. Louis, you had um, organizing, particularly in, in, in a kind of radical political realm, in this case by the Communist Party, who had created unemployed councils, essentially, just fighting for the rights of the unemployed. And really focusing their attention on the state as a kind of key player in helping to, uh, in, in in making possible a kind of you know living wage or livable lives for working class people, and so there were there were large scale demonstrations in the city around City Hall downtown St Louis, that the Communist Party had um, organized, and along with that, you had Black community organizations that were quite active in the 1930s around, you know, they were organizing around economic rights, trying to bring visibility to the issue of class in in African-American communities. Black churches are quite active as, as key kind of community institutions. And so the strike kind of meets at the intersection of all of these forces.
0: These women were able to tap into the already established networks of activism and community support, some of which aided suffragists and women's rights activism and extended that into the workforce. And yet, the women at the nut company brought to workers an important working-class sensibility and openness to radical politics, a politics that spoke of equality between the sexes and races and would affect the nature of African-American women's activism. While the stereotypical face of working-class activism seems fixed, straight out of a Woody Guthrie song or a John Steinbeck novel, that is, young, white, and male, Kiana Irvin points out that these women also had real reason to go on strike in 1933. The fact that this group of strikers were African-American women is important because it challenges the stereotype of the labor activist and also connects suffrage and activism through economic justice. Black women understood that economic justice, connected to political, legal, and social justice, was a significant element to achieving full citizenship.
2: What's interesting about the Funston nut strike is that these African-American women are in a way, they're, they're both central in terms of commun- black communities, where, they sit, where they're situated in black community institutions. And yet at the same time, they're kind of on the periphery in terms of kind of understandings of, of black respectability. Right? So key um, civil rights organizations or key kind of social service organizations like the Urban League, which was very much involved in black working class issues at the time, were, were reluctant to step in as a kind of advocate, a central advocate for these workers. The Communist Party, by contrast, saw these women as, as just key forces in promoting right, the kind of agenda around working-class power and working-class solidarity. And so the, for, for these women, the sense of possibility is heightened. They're seeing these demonstrations. They themselves are undergoing a series of, of, of wage cuts over a few years, Um, And they have the kind of organizing apparatus of the Communist Party at the time um, in such a way that they're able to, to say, yeah, we have advocates. We have a kind of local apparatus that will support us, but beyond that, even a regional one. So between their location within within their communities as church members, as members of of various kind of local community organizations, and also their connection to um, kind of radical labor organizations in the city, they're able to sense that, well, our strike is kind of an extension of this unemployed rights movement, right? They saw themselves as deeply connected to that.
0: While much of that activism can be found in social and cultural connections with the Black, working-class communities of St. Louis, suffrage, the right for these women to vote, also affected how they saw themselves as activists and their larger potential impact on their community and on their local political scene. I think, in a
2: sense, the issue of voting and access to the franchise for women is that issue that um, certainly, in a in a broad sense, informs the activism of these women. I mean, part of the work of, of historians like Rosalind Turborg Penn is to, to show us that the fight for the franchise was not exclusively the domain or the work of professional women or middle-class women, um, that working-class women as well um, were very much a part of this fight. Now, In St. Louis, I focus um, a great deal on African-American women's work and labor, political labor, around the issue of economic justice. And so in St. Louis, by the 1930s, kind of when, when my study begins, you know women are are voting. Uh, black women are voting at that point. Um, and in particular, black voters, just broadly, I should say broadly speaking, are shaping local elections. and they are, in, in for, for instance, behind that kind of move that 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 echoes nationally. African-Americans move to the Democratic Party. They kind of vote for Roosevelt and his kind of New Deal program. Well, that plays itself out in, in the election of Mayor uh, Dickman, who is the the local leader, was kind of dealing uh, very powerfully with the nutshellers who go on strike in, in the 1930s, in 1933 in particular. Um, so the issue of of voting, of, of of especially not just simply casting one's ballot, but then being able to kind of use the power, particularly of local office holding, you know, and use that power in the service of implementing kind of broad urban political agendas around economic and racial justice is very much a kind of thread that courses through the the decades of activism that I that I discuss. Um, so it's 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 about the franchise, yes, and there are important figures, African American women. Um, uh, white women, Jewish women in particular, who were very much about pushing for the franchise. But then beyond that, or, or in addition to that, very much um, focused on what the vote actually meant in a very kind of concrete, tangible way. Um, and so you see African-American women, African-American working class women, very much a part of that conversation. And for instance, I can give a kind of example of this. One of the organizers who really inspired the project was uh, Orally Malone, who grew up in the Deep South um, and in, in, the, in, the 19, in the 19-teens, late 19-teens. And she brings a kind of experience to St. Louis when she migrates in the 50s there. She brings this experience in the Deep South around kind of voting rights activism, right? So trying to, as we know, Jim Crow has its hold on the South, and it, it has a lot of different kind of manifestations, but one of which, of course, is the, the denial of, of the ability to vote for, for black Southerners. And so Malone is kind of cuts her teeth um, in, that round, in that world, in that political world of trying to fight for black access to the franchise. And she brings that sensibility to St. Louis— right, where black folks have had a long kind of history of, of voting. But for her, of course, it's, it's, it's the franchise, but then beyond the franchise, right? So what, who are the folks who are actually in office? And how can they, you know, be influenced to really focus on the rights of, of the working class for Malone? It's very important, especially for African American women who make up, um, who, dis- who are disproportionately are represented in the, in the American working class.
0: Like Malone and the African-American women of the Funston Nut Company, many women understood that the vote was important, but only a step in the long journey toward equality, one that is still not complete. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, it also became increasingly apparent that what the 19th Amendment had done was to secure voting rights primarily for white women, and that the pursuit of intersectional suffrage along racial and ethnic lines remained an unfinished project. Next episode of Hindsight, we will explore women's increasing role as political and social activists to address many forms of gender and intersectionally based discrimination. We will examine how the divisions among race, class, sexuality, and ethnicity faded a bit during World War II, but also came back with a nagging and deepened persistence that required subsequent generations of women to pick up the fight alongside women like Paul, Gardner, and Malone. And we will discover another generation of women's rights activists, Women who continue to push for equality as members of pre-war organizations and movements, the ACLU, the League of Women Voters, labor unions, the birth control movement, but who also formed new organizations that addressed important racial, ethnic, economic, and sexuality-based challenges to the status quo, natural state of women in the United States. <laughs>
1: Hindsight is hosted by Dr. Robin Henry and produced by Fletcher Powell in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. The digital editor for the podcast is Beth Golay. All artwork for Hindsight is created by Jordan Kirtley. Support for Hindsight comes from Drs. Martha and Daniel Householder, the George R. Tiller MD Memorial Fund for the Advancement of Women's Health, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.